welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. All right, good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're here with Edmund Morris, who is officially a market systems and tourism consultant. Edmund is graciously giving us some of his Friday morning. Uh, I'm in San Francisco. It's Thursday afternoon, so it's exciting because I feel like Edmund is speaking to us from the future. Um, Edmund, you know, market systems and tourism consultant, I feel like you're so much more than that. We met um, in Jordan, where I, I knew you as the, the guy who led this huge team um, working on an economic development project. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. And then you're also, I think of you now as a writer. Hey, Christina. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I am uh, I am at the moment a writer, but my, my job prior to this was, was working on the United States Agency for International Development. Uh, economic project called Lens, which stood for Local Enterprise Support. And really the purpose of that project was to support communities in, in rural parts of Jordan and, and to kind of find ways in which you can generate income and create new opportunities for people, improve their livelihoods and get better access to kind of finance and and job opportunities. And so we, we met, I, I want to say 2016, when uh, USA Lens- Shannon were, met you first. I think yeah, Shannon came to Jordan and met you and he came back from that trip and he said, I met this incredible guy working in the mountains with these small companies. You've got to call him. And so then we had a meeting and we spazzed over the adventure travel local analytics system, which was this model you'd created. Yeah, I met Shannon in a like at eight PM in a back office of Jordan's uh, <laughs> Jordan Authority Tourism Board. It was it was a, such a weird meeting because I had seen so much about the ATTA up until this point. I'd been like trawling all your research and data banks and go, you know going through your publications. And so to meet a president of the ATTA out of nowhere as well, like a friend of mine just rang and he said, "Oh, he's he's at the Jordan Tourism Authority. Why don't you go meet him?" And we met late in the evening. And I kind of went through all this data and information and, and work we've been doing on Lens. And essentially, we just approached tourism from such a different angle that I think he hadn't, uh, at this point, seen much like it. And, and uh, that was the, the genesis of the Atlas system. So what we were trying to do on Lens was answer a question that, that USAID asked us, which was, um, can you justify a, a multi-million dollar investment in the travel and tourism industry? And, and if so, what does that look like in terms of jobs? How is it helping people? What are they doing uh, to communities? What impact is it having? And, and where's that impact going to be felt? And so we approached it kind of from the opposite direction to, to most businesses who would look at, you know, how can I improve my bottom line or where can I make money? We said, well, what, where can we create jobs and how can we create impact? And that, that led us into building this model, this system called Atlas, um, where we would essentially simulating and modeling um, growth uh, within the travel and tourism industry and how it would trickle down to different communities. And we ran like different projects through this. So we would run, let's say, uh, the establishment of a large hotel and see what impact that would have. Then we'd run um, a hiking trail. So the, the probably the largest one we did was the running the Jordan Trail through the system and looking at the impact of um, uh, the Jordan Trail's developments um, across different communities throughout Jordan. And that really kind of enable uh, the project I was working on to, to invest multiple millions of dollars in building the communities, building the trail, um, promoting it, uh, and then working you know, with, with two operators and hotels to kind of engage on, on building different elements of it. So it, a lot of these things kind of um, came together, partly because of the data we had kind of developed and the system we built, but it was, um, it was a lot of work to get there, um, but it was worth it. I, I loved it. And that was why, you know, we showed it to Shannon and he got super excited about it. And that's how the whole thing kicked off. And then we met. I mean, the I want to, there's a couple of things in there. One, um, you are also an economist, I think. Is that right? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know what you have to do to be qualifying as an economist. So I'm going to say possibly. I'll say you, market I mean, systems you specialist approach is probably things, my synonym. But yeah. But you, you always have this... Um, economist's mind on things and a reliance on data that was really helpful in the 
from the Adventure Travel Trade Association perspective, because we are typically coming from the bottom up and we have all these anecdotes that we can see about local businesses and their impact in their local communities. But the fact that you were coming at it from this systems approach with data and and you had you had a um, partner in crime. What was his name? Was his name Rafa? Your, yeah, your, Raphael. So my, Raphael, how's he doing? He's good. He's in Vancouver, um, and we still talk regularly. He's still a, a, one of my best friends, um, even though we're living worlds apart. He's brilliant, and he's been he was instrumental through the whole process in kind of putting it together and, and helping understand um, what the data meant and, and how we could extrapolate piece of information. And, and to give you kind of an example of the type of thing we would do is uh, along the Jordan Trail when you don't know where people are hiking or, or what people are, are doing on the trail. Are they running? Are they cycling? Are they sprinting? Um, are they going for a day trip or are they, are they spending a whole week or even two months on, on the trail? So we, what we tried to start to do is say which parts of the trail are really popular because then we can get a sense of which communities are going to benefit from it. And so Raph and I and, sat and down. Then, sorry to interrupt you. I want to say, though, I, we need to set the right picture here because it's so technical and smart what you're doing. But you and, and Rafa are like a couple of guys banging around the desert in your boots with your laptops, right? Yeah, um, pretty much. I mean, we didn't have anyone else um, on the system at the time. We just we just said, um, you know, it's funny, when you get like a challenge, like you know, when USAID asks you, how many jobs are going to be created by by this investment? And what a huge question to ask yeah. your little team. You weren't, I think, do I have it right that you weren't 30 at that time? Yeah, I was like in my late 20s, I think, when it, when it began. It just, it, the, the, the world just is amazing to me. You know, it's a, you can be given these, these huge tasks and then rise to it. And here's a couple guys under 30 who are going to go after this enormous question. Yeah, it's funny. We didn't even think of it at the time. I, I wasn't, I don't think I was aware of what I was getting into and, and what we'd end up doing because it, USAID asked that question of every you know investment they make typically mm -hmm. on, on economic growth projects. So for us, this was kind of par for the course. And we began like looking at, um, as you normally do with, you know, what literature is out there on, on tourism and what, what does the industry normally do when when trying to analyze the number of jobs it's got there? And, and that was kind of disappointing for me. I think I I expected more from the travel and tourism industry to have in terms of data that we could use to inform USAID on the answers to the questions they wanted. And I that was when we, we started to say, well, we need to find new ways around this. We need to kind of model it. We need to, to see if there's any other data points we can use to infer what might be happening in the industry. And that was why, like using... Um, to go back to the example of the Jordan Trail, really just looking at the social media posts on who was posting what, where, and mm -hmm. when. And then you can see, okay, well, we see a bunch of people posting on Instagram or on or reviewing on TripAdvisor with, with you know, a high degree of frequency about certain destinations, certain parts of the trail that seem to be more popular than others. And you can kind of get the impression if people aren't photographing an area, they're either not mm -hmm. going or they didn't like it that much. Mm -hmm. And so we began to sort of use this information um, where there aren't bigger data systems or bigger expensive reporting systems to feed information back. And then that's how it that's all started. And it grew and grew and Atlas got bigger and we started to incorporate new elements into it and more traditional economic um, modeling approaches. So that was where I left it. And then Lens, as a result, we were a $65 million program. We invested... Um, I think around four or five million dollars in the travel and tourism industry in Jordan, and its its impact was great. I was really happy with the work we did on the project. I had the most amazing, amazing team of of almost all young Jordanians who were just extraordinary in in, in what they achieved and how they worked with communities uh, and the work they did. And Raph and I, yeah, we we walked around the company, uh, the country, with a bunch of laptops, but they did most of the actual heavy lifting. They did most of the work and. Um, yeah, and that, that ended sadly about a year ago. Um, the, the contract and project ended. So I, I left Jordan after 10 years in the country and mm. um, moved to Australia. Tell me how um, you got from, from England 
to Jordan in the first place, because that's not, I don't think you're following a traditional career path. This is true. Um, this was a weird <laughs> move. Um, and I still, I don't know, at the time I was, I didn't really believe it was happening until it did, but I had just finished university. I had traveled around Syria while I was in university. As you um, do. As you do, as yeah, as backpacking. Yeah. This is before the war, um, I should point out. This is like 2006 or something. And I had spent like a month in Syria and I fell in love with the Middle East. I was absolutely besotted with, you know, the food and the, the hospitality of the people. And I had the most amazing time. And I came back to, to the UK, um, actually in France, as I was studying in, in Paris. And was talking to my parents and I said, you know, I think I want to move to the, to the Middle East after university. And, and so I began looking for jobs and there weren't many available for 21 year old, 22 year old. So um, on a whim, I wrote to um, someone in the University of York, who's the director of the post-war reconstruction development unit. And he interviewed me and then said, I wasn't going to be joining his unit, um, but he was uh, the chief advisor to a member of the royal family. And so he said that we're looking for a new speechwriter. And so if you'd like to do it. Um, the royal we'll family in Jordan. Yeah, the royal family in Jordan, not the British royal family. Um, so... And so you're 21 and you went back home for dinner and your parents said, how was the interview, honey? And you said, well. Yeah. No, that, that's actually, yeah, literally what happened. I went back to dinner, told my mom and dad that I'm, you know, thinking about moving to, to Jordan to work as a speechwriter. And even they were like, yeah, sure you are. Yeah, yeah, eat your beans. And then um, like a month later, I got a, an email for a security clearance check. And and it was only really then that I began to be like, wait, this is actually going to happen. And it's you know, a big form I had to fill in, send it off. And a few weeks after that, um, my flights are booked. And I remember like the plane landing. I was 22 years old. I was absolutely terrified. I had no idea what I was doing. Didn't speak a word of Arabic. And um, began working the very next day on at the World Court. And so it was Do the most amazing Do you speak Arabic now? Trip. Yes and no. Um, my, my wife is Jordanian, so my... My Arabic is, is good enough to know when I'm in trouble, but not good enough to, to kind of sit down and talk politics. So it's, I interrupt um, you though, go, and I'm interrupting you again. I'm a horrible podcast. It's okay. But I go, the, um, so the Royal Court, you know, what does it look like in there? What are people wearing? Suits? What were you yeah. wearing? Like Suits. how, and it's, then you had a um, meeting in an office and you met the king and he said, I want to talk about this policy Give me, give me a, you know, a couple minutes on a day in the life there, because that is not a usual experience. Yeah, I sadly didn't um, get to ever discuss policy with the King of Jordan, but um, I did meet him a couple of times, extremely friendly. Um, but the day in the life of the, working in the court was probably much like the day in life of most other jobs, or many other jobs. It wasn't, most of it was research. You know, when you're was working partly for the West Asian North Africa Forum, which is one of... Um, Prince Hassan's major kind of initiatives. And um, it's a, really a think tank. So I did a lot of research for them um, on uh, fairly supranational kind of multi, multinational efforts around water scarcity and natural resource protection and, and energy sharing concepts. And then the other part of the time I was working on speeches and the speech writing side of it was, you know, reading five or six books and incorporating ideas from the prince um, into his upcoming speeches. So when he'd give one, for instance, at NATO, or he gave a speech at a university, we would do our best to kind of look at how how he speaks, his cadence, and, and what he likes to talk about, and then incorporate different elements of what he's reading at the time, or topics he's really interested or fascinated about. And, um, and then we just talked to him about it. What was he looking for? What did he want messages do he want to convey? And we'd put the speech together, and then, you know, it would be... Um, It'll be up to him to see whether or not he wants to follow it at the time. And Do you remember things he was fascinated about? Yeah, he, he hasn't changed much. I mean, he still, to this day, continues to be interested in some of the... Uh, I'd say a lot of his ideas are quite visionary um, for the Middle East. He has these ideas of establishing um, essentially an energy and water sharing platform, a little bit like the um, genesis of the European Union, where you share the European coal and steel community back in the 1950s, he wanted to kind of replicate that for the Middle East, which would be in sharing water and energy. And this is particularly relevant for Jordan because Jordan is, is resource poor. It doesn't have 
um, much energy resources, if, if any. And it's the, I think the third or fourth poorest country in the world for war scarcity. So it, it's vital to the country's interest that it finds solutions to, in particular, to water. And his ideas were, were very, very um, so academic and, and quite far out where you're, you always feel like you're on the frontier of something really exciting with Prince Hassan. He, he wasn't someone who I've never had a conversation with him on the daily economics of the topic. It was what would the world look like if we had a train uh, that ran from Beijing all the way to Cairo, um, which ironically was years, I think, before you now have China's Beltway um, project. So he is at that kind of um, really, really big picture level. And so, you know, sitting with him was a privilege. It was, it was amazing to get to talk to him and uh, to do research for him. But uh, yeah, that was, I only did that for about two years. It feels longer, but it didn't actually last too long. And what was, was climate change, you know, this is a show where we talk about the intersection of art, travel, and climate action. Uh, was climate a topic that you remember from, I mean, that's a long time ago. I know certainly when, when we were working together recently, sustainability was very much on the radar for travel businesses, but that's a very narrow slice of, of perspective. Do you remember climate and sustainability being part of what you were working on when you first got there? Yeah, it, it's Jordan is going to be massively impacted by climate change. It's, it's already in a fairly fragile state. So the, the situation then um, as it kind of remains today, is that Jordan is, is fairly dependent on other countries to provide support for its its basic energy and water needs, and you know the the result of that is that as climate you know worsens and, and as change begins to kick in and we begin to see the impacts of of, of a essentially a worsening situation, Jordan is going to be fairly early on in, in feeling those those impacts and changes. And you know the Jordanian farmers will talk about it. So Prince Hassan was. Uh, very early on onto the kind of impacts of climate change. Um, he's been talking about water for years and years. So uh, he he did talk about it. I don't know. I can't remember how much we actually worked on climate change initiatives or engaged too much in, you know, directly in the topic, but it was, it was always in the speeches and it was mm -hmm. conveyed in the research we did. But uh, I mean, the West Asian North Africa, North Africa Forum, uh, which is now the West Asian North Africa Institute, it's a dedicated think tank, um, climate change and sustainability is one of their pillars, I believe. It's one of their uh, kind of founding tenets is to address um, climate change. So it's certainly in there. It wasn't one of my areas of expertise at the time. Um, I'm not even sure I'd say it is now, but the the topic for Prince Hassan was significant. It mattered a lot, and it will continue to, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. The I think um, one thing that surprised me about Jordan and also about you is that there's great diving there. And I think you oh, are a diver. And Edmund, I remember sitting at a cafe with you and you were showing me some images and there was a particular picture of a very brilliant red fish. Yeah, it's a fusilier. Yeah, promised I remember me. This. And then you lost your hard drive. I did. Oh, I that still, still upsets that. me. Yeah, I still sad. Let's talk about diving a little bit. Say oh, a little bit about good. diving in Jordan. So diving in Jordan is, I learned to dive in Jordan. Um, it's not known for, Jordan's not known for diving, primarily because it's kind of overshadowed by, by Egypt, Sharm el-Sheikh. But the, the diving in Jordan kind of sits uh, right at the tip of the, the peninsula in the Red Sea. And there is, um, oh, sorry, in the Gulf. And it's a very, very small town called Aqaba. And it's only about seven to 10 kilometers of, of coastline for Jordan. But along that coastline, you really do have the most spectacular diving. And it, it's unaffected by coral bleaching. Um, and now they're beginning to actually try and study that to understand why the coral in, in Jordan doesn't seem to be affected by bleaching and why the temperatures of the waters are not increasing significantly in, in the peninsula. So in the Gulf, sorry. So it's... It, it is like the Red Sea, except you don't get the pelagic sort of larger fish, but you do get a lot more of the smaller stuff. And it's essentially, for me, the best place you could learn to dive in the world, I think, Jordan is. If you, if you learn to dive in Jordan, you'll spoil it because it's shore diving, it's easy access, there's no current at all, visibility is always above 20 meters, and the fish are amazing. Um, mm -hmm. You get so many 
different variants. And I, even my first like six months, I bought a species of, of the Red Sea book. And I would just, you know, I'd read it before I'd gone dive just so I could see, uh, recognize what I was seeing and then look for certain things um, before diving. So I would try and look at, you know, what type of shrimp or prawn would, would inhabit certain types of reefs. And then I would go look for the reef and see if I could find the prawn. But it, it's, uh, diving is like an obsession. I absolutely adore it. I, I love it to bits. Are you diving now in Perth? I've only done a couple of dives here. Um, it's, I got here and then I had to set up and, you know, get my house organized and these things. So I haven't had much opportunity yet. Um, I do intend to once um, COVID-19 hopefully dies down, but yeah, I, I really do want to, but I talked to the dive masters at, um, uh, down in Bustleton in, in Western Australia. And they, when I told them I'd learned to dive in Jordan, they said, oh, you know, it won't compare. Uh, our shores won't compare to Jordan's. And I thought that was nice. I mean, it, it does go to show that people are aware of, of the potential of diving in Jordan. I'm going to like go on how good I think Jordan Jordan's diving uh, can be. The only thing I'll say is that they really do need to do more in terms of um, protection of the reefs, both from fishing mm -hmm. and from um, pollution. There can be a lot mm -hmm. of trash in the sea, sadly, um, especially because it's a gulf. There's some of the trash um, gets swept up and gets kind of essentially trapped in the um, mm. in, in the reefs there. But it's it's one of those things that you know when you start diving, it's really really hard to stop uh, and to fall out of love with it. It's I, I think it's one of those ones if you, if you can get past some of the weirdness of scuba diving, it's <laughs> it's extraordinary. And so you. So that project ended, and by this point, you were married. Speaking of that incredible Jordanian team that you had in the USAID office, I think you met your wife at work. Is that right? I did. Yeah, she was the um, communications director for the project, and um... and I want to come back to that because I want to ask questions about your Jordanian British family combo. But but first, so. The project ended and you were casting about, thinking about where to go and somehow, and then I didn't chat with you for a few months and then you popped up in Perth. Yeah, I, I was, post lens, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to stay in, in aid and development work or to try something on my own and, and to kind of focus more on tourism. It's kind of worth saying at this point, so the projects are kind of, um, cyclical one project ends and then you know six months or 12 mm -hmm. months or 24 months later you might get put on another project so it's not um it's not like a full-time job where projects last you know decades and and so in between time in between projects um you sometimes get downtime or periods where um you might not be doing anything or you might not be employed and i had the opportunity to go work on a couple of projects but i decided um they were in agriculture and i decided that i wanted to stay in tourism and so my wife and I are talking about it and we, we moved to um, spend a bit of time in Bangkok and then essentially decided to settle in Perth in Australia. And that was mostly because my wife was going to start her own business. And then I was um, also um, going to start focus on writing a book and, and uh, hopefully starting my own company as well um, alongside that. So let's we'll talk see. about Is this it... book. Yeah. This... I... So I mean, you have in our chats, you have such um, great perspective on sustainable travel. And also, I feel like you have this investigative reporter merged with an economist's mind on how to talk about sustainable tourism in a way that's so fresh because we're, we're used to just talking, I think, more from the anecdotal human perspective. And then you bring so much rigor to it. It, so can you say a little bit about your book and how that's going and when we are going to be able to read it? Oh, I have no idea when you'll be able to read it. I think it's, it's slow and laborious. And the problem is, you know, you get, I get into one of these things and then I get lost and I spend you know, days researching something really, really niche. But yeah, the, the idea behind the book is, is actually kind of based on the experience I had in Jordan and with the ATTA. And when you guys um, had me at the World Summit in, in 2017, I want to say, it, listening to all the stories of um, the adventure travel community and, and all these anecdotes, one after the next. Of the, of in Argentina. Amazing. In Argentina, yeah. Salta. That's right. We brought you to speak in Argentina yeah, about so, Atlas so and you great. blew everybody's mind. And all these government um, 
I mean, everybody, not everybody, but there were several countries, three particular countries that thought this would be a great tool to justify adventure investment in their country. You were sort of the star of that event in a way, Edmund. You are far, far too kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know there were okay. Many well, stars. I'm glad I... to know that we influenced you too. Okay. You so hugely. you're there, you're in Salta, you're hanging out with all the was, river guys. Yeah. And I was talking to, I, I mean, I talked to Shannon and, and Casey and you are a bit later or during the summit. And I remember saying like, I felt a little out of place at times because I'm, I'm not a, a tourism guy like I, I wasn't coming from this you know multiple years background in the travel tourism industry I, I wasn't like working on a business or I'm not a journalist and so I said like you know I'm, I'm essentially an economic development person my job is to look at the economics of, of uh, an industry and then determine the impact it has on communities or on, on a country's GDP growth or whatever so that the perspective that you guys kind of gave me on, on through the summit was I really felt well, I would say almost overwhelmed, but so inspired by the sense of, of of storytelling and the amount of sharing of impact and the the work you were doing, it felt at times like I was at a development conference. And and I was thinking, this is tourism. These are tourist people who are really talking about their businesses, but how they're impacting communities and what they're doing to you know um, protect. I remember one of them was protecting turtles in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. We had others mm-hmm. who were giving um, uh, wheelchair access to to people in Patagonia. And so they can, you know, reach and access remote areas. And I just thought these these are amazing stories. Um, but there was a lack of, of data, a lack of kind of like mm-hmm. substantiated information um, mm-hmm. behind them. And that kind of got me thinking more about the travel and tourism industry over the next few years and kind of doing my own research. And then the book was me kind of bringing this all together now and saying, okay, well, has anyone really done like a treatise on the, the fundamental economic behaviors um, in the travel and tourism industry and looked at what impact travel um, has on, on people around the world and what would, what would happen if it continues to grow or what would happen if, if, you know, now tragically during COVID, what would happen if it went away and, and who would be most hurt by these things? The book really is about understanding the economics behind travel and tourism and then assessing whether or not we have it right. I mean, are there things we could be doing better? Um, particularly in the aftermath of COVID and and what should we be changing and how should we be changing our thinking on it? Yes. Well, I was going to, you know, say this, what is COVID? I mean, we were so worried about over-tourism and I believe we still have cause to be worried about it because given the opportunity, we will overwhelm things. I listened to a radio show where they were interviewing people in Venice, some of whom were saying they just, need things to go back to the way they were. Economically, they are so devastated, even though it's peaceful and quiet and, you know, local people are shopping where they could never get in before. Um, my question to you is around these, I think you're assembling some case studies in your book and how is how is COVID changing your thinking or is it? I This sounds... Um, perhaps a little bizarre to say this, but COVID isn't changing my thinking. In fact, if anything, it's kind of reinforcing a view I have, which is I don't, as awful as COVID is now, I think things will improve. I think it will get back to, I think we may see a five to seven year um, hit in terms of where we go back to in terms of tourist arrivals and, and, and visitor expenditures. Um, and it may take a while to kind of recover back to 2019 levels. But I do think... Um, a recovery is imminent. I do think that things will get back to to normal, and this kind of brings me, you know, to the point you made about over tourism, which is I don't over tourism isn't going away. Um, it's an extraordinarily real problem, and it's not one that I don't think anyone yet has really found a solution for. And and part of this comes back to this, you know, pure demographics of of the travel and tourism industry, which is despite there being 1.4 billion arrivals in 2019, we're really only talking about a very small percentage of the population uh, worldwide who are traveling. And that population will grow and grow. And I, I, you, know, you only have to look at the number of, of Chinese people with passports, which I think is around uh, 9%, so 125 million people, to realize that it's a very, very small um, percentage of Chinese people who are traveling the world. India, I think, is 4 to 5%. So the two largest populations in the world are still not traveling 
as much as they could be or will be in the future. So if we're having problems with over-tourism now, uh, now being 2019, what's going to happen in 2030, in 2040, in 2050? And that, I think, is, is something that, although there are some great ideas out there at the moment and there are some fantastic opportunities, I do think we need to start to change um, really the systems approach we have to, to addressing over-tourism. And then equally, um, and you and I have talked about this previously, it's just under-tourism is the kind mm -hmm. of the reverse mm -hmm. of this. And, and if over-tourism is the negative impact on communities thanks to overcrowding, then under-tourism is the negative impact um, on communities due to there not being enough tourists. And when there aren't enough tourists, there are environmental threats as well. There are you know, potential negative impacts on communities when we don't value them as much as we should or when we don't have the economic systems in place to protect them. So it's the tourism has to find a balance in in what it's doing and how it's managing itself moving forward. And I don't think it's got the resources or the equipment as of now to be able to do that. The thing that I have found over the years so fascinating is that tourism is this industry that sits at the intersection of so many other industries. It's affected by and affects transportation, yeah. manufacturing. I mean, you go all around and yet, and yet this, this is like the fluffy because of the, the superficial experience of travel, which is fun. It ends up being in so many cases, just understaffed and underfunded and, and treated really lightly when really it's one of the it can be the most devastating or it can be the most beneficial. I think, yeah, it's spot on there because I, I, I think tourism is, or oh, has been historically uh, pretty undervalued um, by national leaders. You know, it was left out of um, the 2008 financial recovery discussions, I think the, the G20. They, tourism hasn't and doesn't seem to take um, it's, dare I say, this, it's rightful place at the table when it comes to the, the major industries of the world, despite, I think, being fourth in, in its GDP contributions. And again, this is to credit the, the WTTC. They've done an amazing job at, at quantifying the economic impact of, of the travel and tourism industry and, and understanding and measuring what it's doing at a, at a macroeconomic level uh, around the world. And that, that I think, means that Global leaders, especially, and I do think COVID may change this. Um, after um, or as recovery starts to take place post COVID, you will start to see a greater appreciation, a greater understanding of the economic importance of the travel and tourism industry uh, around mm -hmm. the world. And I, mm -hmm. I think there's real opportunity there to engage on on kind of multinational cooperation. But the, you know, one of the the major factors, I think, one of the underlying conditions that's led to tourism being underappreciated is you said it, it, it's, it kind of borrows from other industries. And that's why you, you have something called, you know, the tourism satellite accounts is that the national accounting for, for the travel for most industries. I love that you managed to get satellite accounts into this conversation, Edmund. You are totally an economist. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, Keep I, going. So, I mean, no, yeah, nobody knows what satellite accounts are. You, first, you have to say what that is. Okay, so tourism satellite accounts are essentially a, a form of, of measuring the, the, the economic output of, uh, of the travel and tourism industry. Mm -hmm. And they, they are called satellite accounts because they sit separately from national accounting systems, mm -hmm. which uh, national accounts are kind of a, an agreed upon international standard for how you measure economies. So tourism has a satellite one because it kind of sits between all the other national accounts. It kind of borrows from transportation and restaurants and hotels. So tourism needs to have its own kind of system because it doesn't fit in the traditional model of the national accounts. And that is both a good thing, but it's also, I think, works to the detriment of the travel and tourism industry at times because it, it doesn't get taken as seriously as it should be, I think, because of it. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think satellite accounts, satellite accounts are perfect by any means. I don't think they're the solution to, to some of the challenges in the travel and tourism industry. But they're extremely helpful. Um, mm -hmm. But again, not many countries have them. So we're still at the early stages of, of building uh, TSAs. And, and as a result, you know, having a country like Angola or Namibia or Vietnam or Jordan 
understand the value um, of its travel and tourism industry is really tough because they might not have tourism satellite accounts, which means they're mm-hmm. not reporting or recording on the impact. Yes, and of if it's not tourism, measured, no then it's like yes, then it's like it doesn't exist. If you're not exactly. measuring it, if you can't put a number on it, then yeah. And we we had this in Jordan when we were you know I was talking to the minister of tourism and we were talking about some of the impact travel and tourism was having on rural communities uh, and and how that differs you know how certain subsets of tourism so if you have let's say mass tourism or resort based tourism versus adventure travel those behave very differently economically and so what somebody does when they're in a resort and how they spend their money um has a different impact to someone hiking or someone scuba diving and this also creates within travel and tourism industry other kind of more complex uh, dynamics because they're not all equal but when we report on them at a national level they become equal so we treat them as if they're all the same thing so mm-hmm. this is also why i think you know um big hotels big resorts fantastic job creators but they're supplying more often than not from industrial producers in order to, to have buffets that are serving hundreds of people every single day you have to be able to source large quantities of things. So you will be going to to large farms or to um, uh, industrially sized um, companies to buy your food resources to put in the buffet. And that essentially think- means that, you know, what's happening in the hotel industry um, is very, very different from the bed and breakfast who are buying from a local bakery. And and that's that's one of the most important things, I think, to understand for the travel and tourism industry moving forward is, is to be able to differentiate between its economic impacts um, post-COVID. Edmund, I had the idea. Um, I had this brilliant idea. No, I mean, this has been a topic <laughs> of conversation, obviously, but it, it came to me while you were talking that in this sort of, as we look at the moments through COVID, uh, sort of the crisis and then the recovery and then we move into resilience. And I was in a great presentation today, um, Caroline Bremner from Euromonitor, and she had a chart laying this out. And in the in the sort of recovery period where we're emphasizing regional and domestic travel, it occurred to me that this could be sort of a transformative opportunity for these places that are used to doing just like you said sourcing from industrial farms to feed hundreds of people at the buffet what if you know what if all these places have to start kind of retooling for local audiences and fewer people and different budgets and suddenly there's a a discovery and an awakening about the the local the potential of a local supply chain i think that's the goal right i mean i think that's kind of where in my ideal world of what the travel and tourism industry would look like, most of it, wherever possible, would would be supporting local communities and local businesses. Because I mean, if there, there is a problem, and it, again, to come back to economics and travel and tourism, but you, if you're buying everything industrially and you're buying, say, um, tomatoes and you're importing tomatoes from Spain, but you, you're a hotel or you're a resort in, let's say, Greece, What's going to happen there essentially is your tomatoes are going to taste the same uh, in a buffet in a hotel in Greece as they would in a buffet in a hotel in Spain, as they might in Brazil, because Spain's exporting its tomatoes and all these big hotels are buying in bulk from this one provider. And as a result, a lot of these hotels are at risk of becoming quite generic and that they they are starting to lose their authenticity or their sense of identity within a certain Mm -hmm. country. So in order to Mm -hmm. retain that, the best thing travel and tourism uh, businesses can do is to do as much as they can and sourcing as much as they can from local businesses. And I, I was talking to someone from the Marriott recently, and they were talking about buying um, furniture and buying rugs and carpets from uh, local artisans. And I think it's kind of initiatives like that that you really want to be encouraging as much as you possibly can from both small and large companies to source locally. And it might come at a higher mm-hmm. cost. But I, I think if you spin that on its head and say, well, actually, this might be an investment long term because you're safeguarding yourself from competition um, from other countries. So you're encouraging a lot, a lot more kind of a 
local orientation around ex, you know the experience of even if you're eating in the Marriott in Jordan, you're still getting a Jordanian experience. You're not getting a kind of generic standard experience that you would get in all Marriotts. And I, I think even the bigger hotel chains, the bigger uh, tour operators need to do more or as much as they possibly can, I should say, in, in trying to uh, source from local communities and local food producers, local suppliers, um, because that's ultimately what's going to help protect a destination in the long term. Um, and I, I think post-COVID, you, I hope, I sincerely hope that you with, you know, regional domestic or domestic markets, you'll get um, greater interest in, in supporting local communities um, and I don't know, kind of more economic transactions that go back into particularly rural areas, people that don't have as much economic, economic opportunity. Tell me about your wedding, Edmund. I'm imagining you know, when I was in Jordan, I saw a number of weddings happening on the ground floor of hotels. And as you were discussing this, I, my mind was flashing to these weddings. What, what was your wedding like? Your family no, came from England? Like such a hypocrite. No, because I didn't get married in Jordan. Um, <laughs> where where did you get married? I went to Sri Lanka for it. Why? Do you have a, um, a, a connection there? No, actually. Um, I, why did we get married in Jordan? I think it was partly because we, so in Jordanian, I might even say Levantine culture, you have an engagement party um, and then later you will have a, a wedding. So we had our engagement party, which is quite similar to a wedding, except that it's not a wedding, um, but you have lots of people come. And so we had the engagement in Jordan, um, in this amazing restaurant called Shams al um, in Amman. And that was, you know, a couple hundred people, loads of our friends, and we all celebrating. My friends came from the UK, my parents came. And yeah, that was this kind of, um, uh, kind of a, just party. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing Jordanian food. Um, how how did your family? Awesome. How did your cultures get? I so I have this um, notion of, you know, sort of staid Englishmen who drink <laughs> tanks of beer, and I know Jordanians to be kind of rowdy, actually. So I was sort of. Anyway, tell me about that. I don't. I I think I've seen my dad drink a beer once in his life. I, I mean, I, I think my dad is like a. I got it all yeah, wrong. Stereotype. Well, I, I don't know. It, my parents. I grew up in Italy, so I don't. My dad's oh, kind of is, is, is more of a wine. I drinker did not than he is snoop on you enough. To, wait. Stop. <laughs> so that's, you grew that's up in like, Italy. Yeah, I was, I was until I was thirteen years old. I, I lived in Italy, mm -hmm. and then we moved when I was thirteen. So I've actually spent more time living in Jordan than I have in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, where where so in Italy? In uh, the lake, so Lago Maggiore, near Lake Como. Wow. So yeah, I, I was a little baby boy. I, I grew up in Italy, and so my dad has. Um, I mean, he still he still takes Italian lessons now. He still speaks Italian, um, as does my mum. No kidding. So no kidding. Yeah, yeah. they they are very British though. They're not. My dad worked for the European Commission, so he was posted there um, on on a project long term, and. As a result, I think my dad is is quite Italian um, in, in certain aspects, and my mum is is part Swedish as well. So she kind of is is um, softly spoken and and quiet and reserved, and so they're very um they're quite a gentle and a relaxed family. We always have been, and my my Jordanian family now are, are the same way. They're they're very very calm. My father in law is is. And my, my mother-in-law has been wonderful and really, really generous and kind and welcoming me. So it's been um, really quite straightforward, I, I want to say. So like they were okay. Easy. They didn't mind that. I think, is your wife's name Maya? They didn't mind yes, that Maya. she was marrying, marrying a, a non-Jordanian. I think it took a bit of time to get used to. I think um, they, they wanted to wait a little while to see whether or not I was serious. But no, I mean, once... I think around two years into our relationship, the, the their parents, her parents began to say, "Okay, well, we're we're okay with this now, and it, it looks like this is he's serious about you." And so, um, so yeah, and at this point, I've been seven, eight years in Jordan. So I think one of the mm -hmm. the concerns of Maya's father was that I understand Jordanian culture and and what it means to be Arab and what it means to be um, from a certain sense of community, and and that. That was something I you know, really made a conscious effort for. And you have to do when you work in, in international development. You have to be very, very 
conscientious of where you are and your place in a community mm-hmm. and, and how to you know behave and act uh, responsibly or um show respect to to a whole way of life and and which may be very very different to your own and, and i think in our case i actually draw quite a lot of similarities between the italians and Jordanians in, in many ways they they have a shared love of food and family and um, a strong kind of sense of village uh, community. Mm-hmm. So I, it wasn't too um, unfamiliar to me being in the Middle East. Um, right on. It was in many other ways, but it's, it was, it was really a privilege and, and just parents, the family have been great. And so now that we moved to Australia as well, we're, we're miles away, sadly from both of them. Um, so it's, um, is it's it really sadly Edmund? Is it really, well, you, yeah. I may no. be projecting on you there. Your is your mother a writer? I think um your I recall you saying that your mother is helpful and inspirational with your writing. Yeah, she's she's been a, a star um from her whole career she's been a huge support. But uh, recently she's helped me put together the book and, and to kind of work through and think through some of the problems I'm working on. And that what she did, you know was he was a professor at um, university of hull in scandinavian studies mm. and then went on to write numerous books about saint brigitte of sweden mm. so she's i mean i i joke that she's the world's leading expert in scandinavian medieval studies because she's the only one um but wow that's, un- that's unfair there's probably about 10 of them um it, it's a really really niche area but she's she's been fantastic in, in helping kind of organize uh, my thoughts and take my ramblings and my insane ideas into something that might actually be coherent. So if the book ever does get published, she'll, she'll be, you know, the person that's, that's to, to thank for it. What's your um, favorite, like, if I'm going to pick one book of your mom's, which one should I read? That's really hard. I mean, so I think St. Brigitte of Sweden is in five volumes. So I'd probably say volume one. I mean, <laughs> it's, <laughs> awesome. it's, yeah, I, it's really an academic book. It's a, it's a, a I've, I have to be honest, and she might kill me for this, but I've only read half of the first volume and then got distracted by, you know, by video games or something and video <laughs> games. Yeah. Um, it, it was, yeah, it's a, it's a very kind of niche area. Um, and, uh, for, for scholar, scholarly I pursuits, I think. Well, it's passion driven. It's like something gets hold of you and you can't, I feel like that about, about carbon removal. <laughs> like I just, I'm, I'm making John listen to these, you know, reversing climate change and carbon removal podcast and these, anyway, it's great. The people who do that, by the way, are nori.com and their podcasts on climate and carbon removal are terrific. When, when something grabs hold of you, it truly does feel great. Yeah, it's um, hard to let go of. And I, I think, Carver, you actually the one that kind of got me into carbon removal. Um, oh, that's the highest compliment anyone's paid yeah, me. Yeah, I haven't. I'm um, doing my job a as and, a liaison. Yeah, I have a whole section obviously on climate change. And I, I was looking at carbon offsetting and, and um, measuring the impact, for instance, of the removal of rainforest or, or mm. quantifying. Um, my most recent thing was quantifying the impact of the world's largest cruise ship on the rainforest. So mm. kind of correlating these random things. Look at things. these and, and problems that you set up. I love that. Yeah, we'll see if it, if it works out. Um, but the, the idea is really it, on carbon removal, it just hadn't crossed my radar. And I think it's because it's still, if I'm not wrong, quite nascent in, in terms of um, upscaling and so to get to the point where mm-hmm. people are doing a lot more of it. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I, I, I haven't looked into this at all or – or as, as much as I should have. And then I started to dive into kind of the numbers and look at I mean, the number of companies, particularly in, in the US, that are focused on carbon removal. It's fascinating. And it, it, unlike carbon offsetting, it gives me a lot of hope. Yes. Uh, I think I don't like carbon offsetting very much. I, I think there are fundamental issues with it. Um, and I, I think it doesn't really do what it needs to be doing in order to address climate change. But carbon removal does. And so I, I think, you know, scaling that and, and finding solutions and working with, with communities or finding a way in which the travel and tourism industry can get involved in it would be huge. I mean, absolutely Edmund, amazing. You just, you just said it. Yes, I agree. I, I mean, if we can get travel and tourism engaged in removal, I think we can activate a grassroots movement of travelers who will fund it in increments. This is my hope. I love that you said that. That's going to be our quote. Um, 
I have to wrap this up. I could talk to you for hours. I mean, this whole thing makes me, you know, wish that we were sitting under that bougainvillea veranda, you know, in Amman. I remember having great dinners and rambling with you. One day. And you did um, all the ordering at the restaurants. (laughs) I mean, we'll have to have a reunion. So I want to close, though, with this question that I've been asking folks, which is about music. So, and I know you are a serious fan of music. We've swapped some lists on occasion. So tell me what you were listening to in high school and tell me what you're listening to now. Um, I have to say it's quite similar. Like, I don't think I've changed too much. Um, I was listening to Jurassic 5 and Dave Brubeck in high school, a lot of mm-hmm. jazz and hip hop. Mm-hmm. And I still listen to those. I still listen to Dave Brubeck and Jurassic 5 now. I, I've I've moved a lot more into um, uh, electronic and a little bit of house. So like Floating Points, um, Caribou, Fortet. I'm I big do fan like of, Fortet. Yeah, I, I think they're great. And then most of these you're saying I've never heard of. So I'm taking, I'm sitting here with my little red pen taking notes. Yeah, I, I, I think um, so. The, those those three, those four, Lane Eight and Tourist are pretty good. And then, but I'll go through phases. Like, it depends what I'm working on or what I'm doing. If I'm writing, um, it'll be jazz or potentially chill hop. So Naimano or New Japes. Um, if I'm walking around town, I could go through Childish Gambino or Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, it really just depends. I'm mm-hmm. super varied. And then I'm very, very happy listening to Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, Sibelius. So it, it's... I, there were some things I don't listen to. I probably easier to go through that list. Oh, I'll give you an example. This morning I was listening to um, Quarteto and Sai, which is like a nineteen seventies um, Brazilian jazz band. Hmm. So I, you know, strongly recommend Brazilian uh, music at the moment and Cuban. I'm I'm kind of on a, a roll for those. But uh, I think what was the name of what who you were listening to? I see Gustavo and the Brazilian team out there are going to kill me for butchering this pronunciation. But Quarteto and Sai. So Quartetto and then E-M-C-Y. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Soy Giorgio is another one that I adore. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty varied, but it, you'll catch me in a mood and I'll be going on like a, a binge of, of a certain type of music. And, uh, and then the next day I'll be listening to something completely different. Um, a lot of I it's think- um, based on what I'm doing, like. I'll um, grab you for the show notes and we'll put some links in. I had this idea to fade out our shows with music. And then I started getting into the details of that. And <laughs> I have to buy a here. license. Well, there are agencies you can buy licenses. And I was like, oh, totally do that. And then, and then actually, no, we're not going to totally do that just yet. So <laughs> <I'll-> <laughs> you need to find a jingle instead as well. Just have, like, have someone hum a theme tune. <laughs> That's right. Well, Edmund, it's so great to talk with you. Thank you so much for spending your time and your energy on Arrows on Air. And um, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you, Christina, as always. And um, yeah, please do stay in touch. I, I'd love to hear, continue working together and, um, and, and seeing where you guys go. 